Okay, Romans 1, 1 to 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Regarding his son, who, as, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith in his name. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit, in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times and I pray that now at last by God's will the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Well, it is uh, good to be able to gather together, isn't it? Um, especially, especially when so many others aren't. And please do uh, keep uh, Peter Coe and the congregation down there at Southwest Evangelical Church in your prayers this week. A lot of them live in the Fairfield LGA, so yeah, they're really, uh, um, yeah, really, really under the hammer there. And and I just, I guess, I want to sort of back up what Jeff said. If if you haven't seen someone for a couple of weeks, if there's someone you go, oh, yeah, I haven't seen them for a little while, give them a call, send them a text. Uh, if you're allowed to, visit them. Uh, if not, don't. Uh, but please check in. This is this is one of those times where it's a really great opportunity for our church family to really shine as we seek to support each other. Uh, we do will have a question time after the sermon, so if you want to text your questions in, that's my number. Uh, don't worry, I've got it on silent. little reminder to you as well. If you want to put your phone in on silent now, if you want to check it, go ahead. 
Um, and I'll be able to answer those when they come in um, after the sermon. Uh, or you can just ask in person if you're here. Uh, and yeah, again, a big welcome to you guys who can't be with us in person, but they're on YouTube, so you're most welcome. Well, uh, second week in, in Romans, but I want to ask, when you walk into a room or, or someone turns to you and says this phrase, uh, now, don't be alarmed, what do you immediately do? You look for the spider, don't you? You know, ah, you know what's on me? You know, what, what's about? At the moment someone says, look, you know, there's, there's nothing to be scared of, you wait for the butt. You think, oh, surely there must be, if, you, if you're going to bother to say that, if you're going to give me a warning, oh, look, you know, there's nothing to be scared of, don't be alarmed, there's, there, there's a warning about something implicit. And if they hadn't said anything, you wouldn't have never thought of it, would you? Um, so that's why, you know, if Lucy's got a spider on her shoulder, I won't say anything, I'll just go flick it off, it's much, much better. But if you say, now don't be alarmed, they're going to freak out, it's not a good thing to do. Anyway, um, in this introduction to the letter uh, of, of Romans uh, that Jenny just read for us, uh, Paul makes a statement like this that makes you sort of sit up and go, well, hang on a minute, what are you going on? You might have heard it there in verse 16. Uh, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, that's very similar, isn't it? To saying, now, now don't be alarmed. You think, well, is there something to be alarmed about? He says, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You think, well, is there something that is shameful about the gospel? Why do you feel the need to say that, Paul? Is there a reason? Is, is there something about the gospel that would make you think you had to say, oh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Uh, what's going on here, Paul? Is there something to be ashamed of? Now, there's a little bit of a backstory going on here. Uh, we looked at it a bit last week, so just, again, just a quick, quick uh, orientation, where are we? Uh, Paul, who's writing this letter, so it's called the Book of Romans, but it's really a letter of the Romans, or to the Romans, from the Apostle Paul. Paul was an apostle, <clears throat> one of the guys specifically given the authoritative stamp by Jesus to pass on the good news, to, to effectively set in motion the church. Uh, so we don't have apostles like that anymore. They wrote the New Testament uh, or authorised the writing of the New Testament and they went, on we go. So that was Paul and he's writing to this church in Rome. Um, it's a church made up of Jewish background believers and Gentile, non-Jewish background believers. Uh, and there's a little bit of division. Um, they're having a bit of, there's a little bit of infighting, a bit of arguing uh, around things like, well, well what, what should we, which Jewish laws should carry over into Christianity and which shouldn't? Um, that sort of stuff going on. But Paul's writing to them, uh, and he's writing to them uh, because he wants to encourage them. And we get a little bit of that here in, in these next few verses. In verse 8, he starts to tell us uh, kind of his relationship with the Romans. We get a, in, an insight into what Paul thinks of the Romans. Um, so in verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit, in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Uh, now, Paul didn't plant this church. It's quite interesting. Most of the churches, I feel like all the churches we read about in the New Testament, were started by Paul. Paul was a serial church planter. He went from town to town, from city to city, uh, planting churches, preaching the gospel, appointing leaders, then moving on to plant a new church. But the Roman church is a church Paul didn't plant. Uh, and so you can see that he's, he's not speaking with the same kind of authority he often does in his other letters. He's being a little bit more delicate because he's, he's never met these people. Uh, they, they probably have heard of him. He's obviously heard of them. Uh, but they actually don't know each other. 
but they seem to be doing well in many ways. He says that your faith has been reported over the whole world. And that's, you know, Christians over the known world in the Roman Empire would have heard come down through the, uh, you know, the Chinese whispers, oh, there's even a Christian church in Rome, in the capital of the empire. Uh, Wow, isn't that exciting? So he's saying, hey, lots of people have heard of you and give thanks for your faith. Uh, He's been praying for them, we see, and he's wanted to visit them for a long time. Uh, Later on in the book of Romans, we'll find out why he couldn't visit them. And it's actually because he had too much work to do where he was. Uh, So he says, now, finally, I can come and visit you because I've finished telling everyone in my area about Jesus. (laughs) So he he, he basically thought, well, I'm not going to go to Rome to encourage this church while there's still people just down the road who haven't heard about Jesus. Um, So he, he says, I've done all the work I need to do here. Finally, I might be able to come and visit you. So he's now planning to come. And next we see why he wants to come. He says, well, this this is why I want to come and visit you. We pick that up in verse 11. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have among the other Gentiles. I am obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So remember, this is the introduction to his letter. He's he's laying it out. He says, I want to come and talk to you. I want to bring something to you. Uh, and, And we find out here what it is that he wants to bring to them. Now, we've actually got sort of three parallel statements uh, in this passage. Uh, in, in some of the daily reading notes, if you're doing the deeper emails, you'll have seen me reference my highlighters. I find highlighters when I'm reading the Bible really helpful because I can highlight the different themes and I can see patterns uh, that are coming up. Uh, if I don't want to, you know, some Bibles have got such a thin page, if you highlight it, it goes straight through. So I'll often print out the, uh, print out the passage and then draw all over it. But here's a little bit of the background that I did. I haven't got my highlighters there, but these are the three parallel statements. Verse 11, verse 13, and verse 15. Uh, Can you see how they're parallel? He's actually talking about why he wants to come and visit them. I long to see you so that, you know, um, I plan many times to come to you in order that. Um, That is why I'm so eager to, you know, so so there are three parallel statements. He's talking about, this is why I want to come and visit. I want to come and visit. I want to bring you something. And here's what it is. So they're the three statements, the three answers. I long to see you so that... I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Now, if you're in the Roman church, you might be thinking, wow, this is going to be good, isn't it? The Apostle Paul, an apostle of Jesus, this guy's been all over the world planning, and he's bringing us a special spiritual gift. What's it going to be? You know, what what would you be imagining Paul to turn up with? You know, some, a briefcase that's kind of glowing. I, I, I don't know what you're expecting. You think, well, this is going to be special. This is going to be something that, that no one else can bring. Uh, then he goes on and explains to himself. So he, he planned to come many times in order that this is why he wants to come. I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. Uh, now, the word there for harvest is fruit. Uh, so it's probably meaning in the, in the Bible, often when the word harvest, like wheat harvest is used, it's actually talking about the judgment day. Um, so that's a big illustration for the judgment day. But when it's talking about fruit in the New Testament, mostly it's actually talking about how, how our lives look. Uh, you know, it's, well, is there fruit in your life? 
Um, so he wants something to change um, in their lives. Uh, I might have a harvest, I'll argue. Think, okay, well, this is interesting. There's some sort of spiritual gift. Um, there's a harvest. Okay, he says, that is why I am so eager to, what's it going to be? Preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Does that come as a little bit of a surprise with all that build-up? It's a spiritual gift. He's going to reap a harvest among them. It's the Apostle Paul. He's been waiting all these years to visit them, to bring them something special. And this is talking to a church. It's a bunch of Christians. They've already been converted. They already follow Jesus. He says, well, I want to bring you the gospel. I want to bring you the gospel. Now, uh, what he's planning on bringing them is gospel. Now, why, Paul, why would he then have to go on and say that he's not ashamed to bring the gospel? Because that's the very next verse. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why, is he, why does he need to say that? Remember where we started when someone says, oh, now, don't be alarmed. It's because there's something that's potentially alarming. Now, why might it be shameful for Paul? Why might he be tempted or might they be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, uh, as I was thinking about this, I wonder, do you ever get sick of the same thing? Now, a little bit of a, I guess, a trigger warning. If uh, you don't like knowing where your meat comes from, shut your eyes now. Because there we go. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we dispatched, uh, very ethically, one of our beasts. There he is there. Uh, His name was Molasses. He was a very well-loved cow. I had a lovely, lovely life, well cared for, and he was put down, all humanely, butchered, Uh, and he's now in our freezer. Uh, So our freezer is jam-packed full of meat, uh, which is really exciting for me. I opened the fridge, I think this is amazing. It's not so exciting for Lucy, because she goes, oh, can't we just have some chicken? You know, not steak again. Do we have to eat mince? Uh, uh, Now, that's kind of what it feels like. Sometimes if you've, you know, I don't know, if you've won a prize and got 4,000 kilos of pasta and you think, oh, come on, can't we just eat something different? Um, Do you ever find thinking, oh, can't we have something else? Now, I wonder if that's kind of what might have been going on for the Romans. Why isn't Paul ashamed that his main gift uh, is what they already have? Because they've already got the gospel, don't they? They've already heard the good news of Jesus. They've already been converted. They've already accepted Jesus. And Paul says, well, I'm bringing you the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I reckon the Romans might have been thinking, can't we move on from that already? Come on, Paul. You know, we're not in entry-level Sunday school here. Uh, We already know the gospel. We know about Jesus. We know he loves us. We know he came to die for our sins. We've accepted that. We're on board. Have you heard the phrase, you're preaching the choir? Come on. Can't we have something else? Can't we have something new? Can't we move on from that already? And I wonder if we feel that sometimes about the gospel. I wonder if sometimes, uh, especially if you've been a Christian for a longer time, uh, and you think, this is just the same thing I've read before. This this is just the same. Can't can't I move on? Uh, Maybe you come to church and you think, oh, come on, Liam. (laughs) Can't you you help me get practical? Uh, Let's let's not preach on the Bible for a while. Let's, Let's preach on some real practical stuff. Uh, or maybe it's like thinking, oh, isn't there somewhere deeper we can go? We've got the gospel. Is there like a second step to Christianity? Maybe it's, maybe it's a bit secret. Maybe it's a bit unknown. Is, can we go a bit deeper and get to sort of stage two of Christianity? I'm ready to move on. It seems that might have been what this Roman church were feeling. And so Paul, right up the front of his letter, he wants to say, hey, 
you're not going to get anything new here. <laughs> so if you're, you're listening to this letter, because it would have been read out, uh, if you're expecting something new, something other than the gospel, some insight, some spiritual blessing that's going to get you in deeper, there's nothing new. You're going to get the gospel again. And when I do come and visit you, when I finally get to Rome, guess what I'm going to be preaching? The gospel. But don't tune out. That's what he says to the Romans, and that's what he's saying to us. Don't tune out. Uh, sitting here once again, hearing from God's word, don't shoot out because the next two verses, Paul explains why the gospel's worth having again, why he can describe the gospel as a spiritual gift that will strengthen them, that will encourage them, will, will, will produce a harvest among them. He's saying, hey, it's all right. I know it's what you've heard before, but it's really rich. So bear with me. So that's where we're heading today. Uh, and we're going to see Paul in just two verses. We're going to see what he says about the gospel. Uh, we're going to see that the gospel is saving. We're going to see that the gospel is all about God's righteousness. And we're going to see that the gospel is only accessed by faith. And all these things will be sort of uh, talked at in depth over the next few chapters. So this is just the introduction to these themes. Uh, and we'll, of course, think about uh, what, what that means for us, how we can apply it. So first of all, the gospel is saving. Uh, now, when you think of the gospel, uh, maybe in your head you think, oh, yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the gospels. And it makes sense because when we talk about them, they're the gospel. The word gospel uh, means good news or good word. Uh, it's based on a Greek word, two Greek words that goes together. Uh, so it's an announced message, the good news that's being delivered. Uh, and that's why the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is called that. It's the good news, the good news of Jesus according to Mark. Uh, but the gospel isn't just that really crisp little uh, pamphlet that you might get that's, you know, just got the raw basics. I think sometimes we think about the gospel of, okay, it's the real simple, basic message of Jesus, and the rest of the New Testament, well, that's something else. There's the gospel and then there's everything else. Uh, but it seems uh, that, that Paul's, he, he's talking about more than that. Uh, when he talks about the gospel, it's the whole message of Jesus. It's, it's digging into what does it mean? How does Jesus save us? How do we follow him? How do we access the benefits of the gospel? What does life following Jesus look like? All that is wrapped up in this good news of Jesus. Um, so it's not just the really simple gospels. Uh, but moving on, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So this is the first one. The gospel is the good news of Jesus and it saves and again, I think often we think of salvation as like a one-time past event. You say, well, when were you saved? If you're talking to a Christian, when were you saved? It was a past event that happened on the you know, 19th of May, 1956. I don't know if it was for any of you, who knows? Uh, and, and I can tell you when it happened. That, when, that was when I was saved. So we think of it as an event in our past when I first decided to follow Jesus. But if you look across the New Testament at the word saved, it's actually most of the time used in the future tense. So it's something that's going to happen. So a few times it's used about in the past, you have been saved. But most of the time in the New Testament, if you're being saved by Jesus, it's actually something that's going to happen in the future. Um, it's much more dynamic. And, and there's a few times where it talks, about, well, not a few, it's quite a few times, where it talks about you are being saved. So it's something that's happening as we go along. So a couple of times, it's something that happened in the past. Many times, it's something that will happen at a particular time in the future. 
um, and, and often it's, it's through. Uh, in the future, when it's talking about will be saved, it's announcing that there is an event coming that you need to be saved from. So if someone says, hey, on this day you will be saved, what question should you ask? Well, what's coming? What do I need to be saved from? I need to work out whether I should be hiding behind a tree or in a bunker. I, I need to know what is coming that I need to be saved from so that I can make sure I'm secure. And the Bible's really clear that there is a day coming. It's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, and that's the, that's the day that's coming that everyone needs to be saved from. Uh, it's the day when everyone will be judged according to what they've done, according to how they've treated God. And we're told that everyone will fail that judgment. Everyone will fail that test. So, and God's wrath will be poured out on all who fail that test, which is everyone. So that's the coming event. We actually see it in, in Romans, um, just in a couple of chapters, Romans 5. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved? You can see it's future there. Shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So when, it, when Romans talks about saved, it's not, not just talking about something in the past. It's talking about something in the future. But it's also talking about something that's happening in an ongoing way. Um, there's work happening in Christians, people who've already decided... To, to follow Jesus, but haven't yet died. Jesus hasn't yet come. There's a lot of time in between that. Uh, and there's work that happens in that. If you've known a Christian, or if you are a Christian, you'll see that. You'll think, yeah, I've, I've, I've been changed. Someone is changing me. And it's happened bit by bit over many days, weeks, or years. Um, and, and Paul picks that up in a different letter in 1 Corinthians. Uh, for the message of the cross, he writes, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it talks about it in this, this ongoing way, uh, that, that it's something that happens in us continually. It's not a one-off event that you think, yep, I accepted Jesus into my heart, I've got a little certificate to say that I got dunked, uh, I'll stick it in my back pocket, I'll head on home, I'm sorted. No, no, it's this, this ongoing thing that Jesus is doing in us, uh, that by the power of the gospel, it's, it's changing. And you might have picked that up in uh, verses 11 to 13. Uh, did you see that? When Paul says, I long to come uh, to give you this gift to make you strong. Remember, he's talking to Christians here, that we might be mutually encouraged, that I might reap this harvest, this fruit. He's going to give them gospel, and he's expecting when he preaches the gospel to them, that God will continue to change them, that he'll keep saving them, that they'll be strengthened, encouraged, that they'll bear fruit, their lives will change because of the work of the gospel. Um, so that's the first one that we see. We see that the gospel, the gospel saves. But how does the gospel save? Well, that's where Paul goes next. He says the gospel saves because it reveals God's righteousness. So this is where we'll move into verse uh, 17. Uh, for in the gospel, the for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Um, so this is the thing, if you take a, a piece of medication, a little tablet, uh, what's the thing in that tablet that's saving you? You know, you look for the active ingredient. You think, well, what's the, what's the active ingredient in here? Well, that's what Paul says. This is the active ingredient in the gospel. That's what is the saving power of the gospel. It's the revealed righteousness of God. Now, just uh, to get a little... Uh, I guess Greek nerdy here. Uh, you might be aware that the New Testament wasn't written in English, written a long time ago. It was written in Greek. 
Uh, and the Greek language is very particular. We don't talk about it too much because the English translations are fantastic, uh, which is great. So we don't all have to learn Greek to understand the Bible. Uh, they've got good translations. But there's times like this where you go, oh, this is really interesting that comes up. Because in the Greek, it says, uh, for the righteousness of God is revealed. So it's exactly as we read it in our NIV. But in different translations, it's translated, for righteousness from God is revealed. Now, the way those words are put together, righteousness of God, literally that's what it says in the Greek, it could mean three different things. See, uh, if you're talking about God and his righteousness, the righteousness of God could be his righteousness. So righteousness is, I remember it by thinking it's rightness. It's how right and how little wrong is in a person. Uh, so God is right, he's completely right, he's holy, he's good, he's perfect. So when you say the righteousness of God is revealed, it could be just like a, a curtain's being opened uh, and we're seeing how righteous God is. So it could be just seeing how righteous God is. Uh, but it also could mean something else. It can mean the righteousness that, this, that it's God's righteousness that he's giving to others is being revealed. And, and that seems in the context of Romans to what, is, what, what this is talking about. The righteousness of God. And to understand this, we've actually got to know a little bit of our Old Testaments. Um, so the New Testament, I like to think of it as it's the New Testament's in black and white until you read the Old Testament and all of a sudden you get it in full HD colour. Uh, so you just read the New Testament. Hey, you'll see Jesus. You can become a Christian and stay a Christian reading the New Testament. But if you want to move from an old pixelated black and white screen to the full HD colour, you've got to read the Old Testament because that's where it explains, that's where all this language comes from, that's where this image comes from. Uh, in Isaiah, here's God talking about himself, and he's talking about his righteousness, and here's one of the ways he talks about it. Isaiah 51, uh, verse 5, I encourage you to read the, the whole of that chunk, the whole of chapter uh, 51, uh, at your leisure, but here's what he says in verse 5, my righteousness draws near speedily, my salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. Now, in those verses, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8 of Isaiah 51, three times righteousness and salvation come up in a pairing like that, where God says, my righteousness is coming, my salvation has arrived. And so we see actually God is talking about his righteousness arriving as being kind of equivalent to when his salvation arrives. So he's saying, when my righteousness arrives... That's when my salvation arrives. And, and you need to understand some of this stuff to get how rich the language in Romans is, to understand how righteousness is used in the Old Testament. Now, that's just, uh, that's just one of the tiny little, little places where we see it. Um, so, so how does God's righteousness bring salvation? Well, Romans makes it really clear, and we're going to see it in a couple of chapters. Uh, in Romans 3, uh, we, it's announced that a righteousness apart from the law has been made known or revealed. Uh, so this is not talking about looking and seeing God's righteousness anymore. This is about how humans like us can become righteous. How humans can be made righteous, declared righteous, to be right and pure and holy and therefore deserving to be in God's family. Uh, we might remember a very famous verse in Romans 3, just a few verses earlier, as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And so that's, that's really how we look at Romans. We think, and you think, well, what's going on here? Well, you've got a problem. You've got a holy God who's righteous, he's pure, he's perfect, and he says there's a judgment day coming when everyone will be judged. The righteous get to be in my family, and everyone else goes into eternal destruction. 
That's, that's the problem. This is the other big part of the problem. No one's righteous. So, so what's the solution? How can a righteousness be revealed? How can, a right, how, can, how can unrighteous people be made righteous? That's the big problem of, of human sin and forgiveness, isn't it? Because even when someone says sorry, the reality is that that thing still happened. <laughs> uh, I often realise that when I've said something and I, I say it in anger or in frustration and you want to drag those words back in and you might apologise and you try and make up for it, but you can never unsay those words. That, that's the problem with sin. You, you can't actually wipe away the, the bad things we've done. We're all unrighteous. No one's righteous. So how can we be made righteous? Well, that's where a new word I want to introduce you to. You might have used it already, but it's this word justified, and it comes up in Romans um, a lot. And the word righteous and justified actually have the same root. They're the same basic word. Um, so justified could be translated, I like this one, righteousified. Yeah, you can see why we've got another word for it. The word justified means to take somebody who is not righteous, someone like me, someone who's a sinner, someone who's treated God and other people terribly, to take someone like me and then give me a, a new badge and declare me righteous. So to be justified is to say, hey, Liam is declared to be righteous. That's what it means to be justified, declared to be pure. Someone who's not righteous, declared righteous. Because we can't justify God. He's already righteous. He's, he's, he's never done anything wrong. He's not bad. Uh, he, he is righteous, but I'm not. So how can I be righteous? I need to be righteousified. I need to be justified. So that's what Paul says has been revealed in the gospel. That's the active ingredient in the gospel that saves people. That there's a possibility that people like me, who are sinners who've treated others and God so terribly, can be declared righteous can be announced and have a new badge, a new identity that says, hey, Liam, you're no longer unrighteous. You're no longer under my wrath. You are now righteous. You are now justified. And we're going to dig into that in the coming chapters. But for now, let's just pull, um, let Paul finish his sentence here. Uh, he's, we've already seen just in those two verses, the gospel is saving. Uh, the gospel reveals God's righteousness. And now we see how we get the gospel, how we, we take that pill, that active ingredient, and let it work in us. And it's by faith. You see that in verse 17. For the gospel is the righteous, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is or is accessed by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Uh, now, you might have, as I was reading that, I thought, wow, faith comes up a lot there, doesn't it? You know, the word faith, when I saw it, when I got my highlighter out and went to highlight all the words faith, but there's actually even more faith here than we see in the English. Um, again, in that Greek language, um, there's actually one Greek word, uh, it's the word pistuo, and you can translate, tr translate that word trust, believe, or faith. Uh, and, and, and you can do that legitimately, means different things, but that means that all these words are actually faith. So if you see there, to everyone who has faith or who faiths, believes works better in English, doesn't it? Uh, first to the Jew and to the Gentile, from the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness. And that little phrase, faith, from first to last, is literally a righteousness that is from faith to faith. It's got faith twice there. Uh, just as written, the righteous will live by faith. So when you notice that, you think, well, I wonder what Paul's talking about here. Well, he's talking about faith. It's a really big deal here. 
Uh, the whole of it from first to last. That's a good translation. Paul's saying that's how you access the righteousness of God. Uh, how, do you, how do you get declared righteous? How do you get justified? How do you get that new badge that declares Liam a sinner, not to be a sinner, but to be deserving of being in God's family? How do, how do I get that? Well, I get it by faith. I get it by not, not by doing anything, not by proving that I deserve it, but by faith, which is, which is trust, which is believe. That's the word. It's by believing or trusting, faithing in God. And Paul ends there with a little quote uh, from a little book called uh, Habakkuk. Um, so the righteous will live by faith. Uh, Habakkuk's one of what they call the minor prophets. So it's towards the end of the Old Testament. If you want to find Habakkuk, I recommend going to your index page right at the start. It's a lot quicker. You find out what page it's on. Um, and and Hab Habakkuk's... Uh, he's, he's preaching God's message to the people of Israel before one of the great disasters came, before one of their exiles. And he's saying, hey, judgment is coming on this nation because we, God's people, have sinned. Judgment's coming. But what Habakkuk doesn't say is, hey, let's clean up our act and maybe God will change his mind. He doesn't say that. The message of Habakkuk isn't, hey, judgment's... You know what sometimes we say as parents is, hey... You're headed for a timeout. There's judgment coming if you don't cut that behaviour out. And, uh, and the kids should be hearing, hey, I need to, I need to change my behaviour. Uh, and, and maybe that judgment won't come. That's not what Habakkuk says. He doesn't give any warnings to change behaviour. He only says the only hope of escaping this coming judgment, it's coming. The only hope is faith. That's a quote directly from Habakkuk. The righteous will live, will survive by faith. Uh, there's a little uh, song at the end of Habakkuk, and it's clearly a song because we're told to use stringed instruments when we sing it. Uh, and here's the song, I won't try and sing it, uh, or a little, little bit of it. You might have, might have heard it before, though. The fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Now, I grew up listening to a fellow called Don Francisco, who, uh, who sings this song very joyfully, uh, but he puts a little phrase on it uh, at the end, uh, where he, and he, he leaves off that little, uh, little bit of it at the end. He, he doesn't sing, but I'll rejoice in the Lord and be joyful in God my Saviour. He says, but there'll be no cattle in the stalls. He says, I'll trust in God, and by his might, he'll change it all. I like Don Francisco, I like his music, but he got that wrong. Because Habakkuk didn't say, hey, it's all right, don't worry, you'll have cattle in the stalls again, you'll have figs again, God will turn it around. If you just trust him, God will turn it around. That's not what Habakkuk says. Habakkuk says, despite this, even when this is happening, in the midst of having no food, in the midst of famine, in the midst of disaster, now insert your current trauma here. What are you going through? What do people go through? In the midst of that, Habakkuk says, I can rejoice in the Lord. Now, that's a description of what it looks like to live by faith. So he said earlier on in chapter 2, the righteous will live by faith. Not, not by what's going on currently, not by how much money I've got, not by how healthy I am, not by how my family is hanging together. Those things won't be the thing I measure my life on. I'm going to put all my money on God. I'm going to trust God. He means banking your hope on God, 
no matter what happens in life. That's what sort of faith means. It's this trust in God, and it's not based on anything we've done. It's not saying, hey, God, hey, I'm going to do all this stuff. Can you just give me some cattle in my stalls? <laughs> hey, God, I'll clean up my life. Can, can you just forgive me? Can you just turn it round? That, that's not the Christian message. The Christian message is a message of faith, that there is judgment coming, just like there was for the people in Habakkuk's time. There's judgment coming. There's a day coming where everyone will be judged on, a, on way, how we've behaved, how we've treated others and the way we've treated God, and we'll fail that judgment. And no matter cleaning up our act, no matter doing good things, no matter changing how we live, we'll deal with that. The only hope is to put our trust in God that he will declare us righteous, that he will justify us. That's the beating heart of Christianity. Christianity at its core is not about imitating Jesus. It's not about becoming a better person. It's not about living a good Christian life. It's not about cleaning yourself up. It's about turning to Jesus, recognising there is wrath coming and I have no way to escape except by trusting, trusting the God who can declare people like me who aren't righteous to be righteous. Faith is what saves from God's wrath. It's how we start and it's how we carry on the Christian walk. Uh, you might have heard of the three P's of sin. Uh, I find this quite helpful to think about uh, uh, the, the sin, the way we've treated God and others, uh, how we can be saved from sin. Uh, the power, the, the penalty, the power, the presence. Um, so we can be saved from the penalty of sin now, already done. If you put your trust in Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, if you believe that what Jesus did on the cross truly does wash away your sins, if you trust him as your Lord and Saviour, you believe in him, you can be free, already free from the penalty of sin, declared righteous, a new identity, a new badge, a new person in Jesus. That's the saved past tense, already saved. We can be free from that completely. Uh, we can be increasingly freed from the power of sin after we've been freed from the penalty of sin before we get to heaven. Uh, so as we go through life, the gospel transforms us and changes us. Jesus continues to do that work. And we, we increasingly, in increments, change. We're freed from the power of sins, the sins that had a hold on us that we couldn't escape from, the parts of our personality, the parts of our behaviour that we don't like, that we want to get rid of, that God doesn't like. Increasingly, he can save us. It's a process called sanctification in the Bible. It's that, that change, that ongoing change. And one day, one day in the future, when Jesus returns after the great and glorious day of the Lord, when his wrath is poured out and all his people are saved, we'll be free from the presence of sin. There'll be no selfishness. I'll have no sinful inclinations. And that's the, that's the great hope. That's the future saved. That's how this works. And at every stage, we come with empty hands seeking mercy from our Heavenly Father. It's not like we trust the gospel to save us and then you've got to pull up your socks and just improve as a Christian. No, no, the gospel changes us. God changes us. He saves us, he changes us, and he'll bring us through. Well, what's, what's this mean for us? Uh, the first one is uh, a little, little quote that I came across last week uh, from a fellow called Dick Lucas, uh, a London preacher, 
And he said this great little quote, the danger of putting the gospel in a nutshell is that people may end up thinking it's the size of a nut. Uh, Now, we as Christians are often so keen on coming up with a pithy little statement that summarises the gospel. I want to be able to give the good news of Jesus in 30 seconds. And Dick said the problem with doing that, the problem with summarising and simplifying the gospel and making it clear and simple, putting it in a nutshell, is that people end up thinking, well, it's... It's just oversimplistic. It doesn't work. It's only the size of a nut. And I would encourage us not to do that, uh, to get in deep. I don't know if you'd noticed, but I, I could have preached for hours on those two verses. So thank me that I've only gone over time a little bit. Uh, there is so much here. We could keep teasing this apart all night. And I encourage you to do that. Get in your Bible. Get in it with home group, with others. Read it, dig into it. Don't just assume that, yep, I've got the simple gospel. In a nutshell, that's good enough for me. The gospel is far bigger than that. It is deeper, it is richer. So don't do that, keep digging in. The second thing I want to encourage us to be is, is not to be ashamed. Now that, that, that quote, the, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation, that is often used to inspire people towards evangelism, to say, get out there, don't be ashamed, tell all your friends and family, Jesus is the king and they need to come to him. Now that is true, but that's not what Paul was saying here, was he? Because he's talking to Christians. He's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for you. I'm not ashamed to bring the gospel to Christians. I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed. I'm not, embarrassed. I'm not worried that you're going to say, oh, come on, Paul, not the gospel again. I'm not ashamed of that. So, so the, the context here uh, is to, that, that we shouldn't start looking for the next thing beyond the gospel. Okay. Okay, I've got the gospel, I've got the basic news of salvation, I can move on. I can move on to a deeper spirituality or self-help. Anything like that that is apart from the gospel, apart from God's word, is not going to help us. It's not actually going to take us deeper. So don't be ashamed of just getting back into it. I remember people saying, well, how many, how many times can you read one book? Come on, get something new. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed. You're going back to that book again and again and again. The gospel, the, the message of salvation in Jesus, it is rich, it is deep, and it will nourish and grow you. Don't be ashamed of that and get in. And the one, other one is to continue to be saved. Continue to be saved. This is the ongoing transforming work. work. If you haven't come to Jesus in repentance and faith, you need to begin that process. Uh, no point thinking about how Jesus will transform you if you haven't yet repented and turned to him and said, hey, I'm not going to trust myself anymore. I'm going to trust you to forgive me. You've got to do that first, but once you've done that, continue to be saved. Continue to look to Jesus, the good news of salvation, to transform us, to overwhelm us, to change our priorities, to change our desires, to change how we live, to change how we parent, how we relate to our friends, to change us in our marriage relationships, to change how we spend our time. And part of that change will mean telling others about Jesus. You can't read the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, and think, you know what, Uh, maybe I'll just tell my friends about regenerative agriculture, about how they can improve their pastures by managing their cattle properly. That's a real temptation for me, believe it or not. You know, I think, oh, I could just help them, you know, improve, you know, the biodiversity in their soils. That's not what they need. The gospel will be saving me as I read Romans and again I'm just overwhelmed that wow, they need Jesus. They need to be in God's family because they're not righteous before God. I'm not righteous before God. They need to be justified. 
They need to be included into his family. And we continue to be saved by soaking, by marinating God's word, by praying that he'll do that, by doing that together with one another. As Paul says, that we'll be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. That's the continuing work of the gospel in us. Continue to be saved. I'm going to pray now, then we've got a quick reflection song uh, as we think about this and process it. It gives you time to text in your questions um, or think them up. Lord, we thank you uh, that you have given us such a rich and good message, uh, a good word, that it can be summarised as the gospel, as the good news. We thank you that it is so deep that we could send our whole lives digging into this and not come to the bottom of it. But we thank you that it's so, I guess, so clear and profound, uh, that it transforms not just our future, but it transforms us now, and we thank you that you do that. And we pray, we pray that we will see and feel the effects of the power of the gospel in our lives, uh, in our hearts, in our minds, that you will uh, bring us to our knees if we need that, Lord. Help us to repent, help us to stop trying to earn or be good enough for you, but to give up, to surrender, and throw ourselves on your mercy. Please help us to turn away from uh, the you know, fruitless desires of this world, uh, to stop wasting time, uh, to stop saturating ourselves in unwholesome things, but to saturate ourselves in your word, in your gospel, and be saved, be being saved by that. And we pray that you'd help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, help us to continue to trust you right to the end, so that on that great and terrible day of the Lord, we may stand before you, declared righteous, justified, as people who do not deserve to be there, but because of what Jesus has done, because of faith in him, we might stand and be declared as your, your family, your children. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we've already had a question come in to the text. Well done. Uh, and the question is, in verse 11, is the spiritual gift purely the gospel he's giving them, or is it other spiritual gifts that the Bible talks about further along in Romans? And you might say, and in 1 Corinthians and in other places. Uh, great question. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, it could include more things. Uh, there's a couple of things that make me think that the spiritual gift uh, that Paul talks about is the gospel that he's bringing them. Part of it is because of those parallel statements. He say, I want to come to you to give you. And he says it three times in the paragraph. I want to come to you to give you, to give you, to give you. And he says, to give you this spiritual gift, to give you something that will reap a harvest, to give you the gospel. So that's what makes me think that. The other reason is that the particular Greek phrase, and I didn't, I'm not clever enough to pick this up. Uh, I read Greek poorly, but I can read it well enough uh, that I can read the commentaries. So people who spend their lives studying the original languages of the New Testament uh, and, and writing commentaries on it uh, can pick up. Uh, one of the commentaries uh, this week helped me see that the particular phrase, uh, a spiritual gift here, comes up nowhere else in the New Testament. So elsewhere where Paul talks about spiritual gifts, uh, particularly uh, things that are gifts from God through the Holy Spirit to us to serve the church, that's what a spiritual gift is, uh, can be things like words of knowledge, like hospitality, like preaching, like teaching, all sorts of things, leadership, generosity, they can all be spiritual gifts, they're gifts from God, through a person to the church. Here, the particular phrase, uh, it's two words, it is a, the pneumatoid, it's the, the spirit word and the gift word, 
but it's not the same phrase that it's used where in all those other places that talk about those uh, more classic spiritual gifts, uh, which makes me think, yeah, it doesn't seem that's what Paul's talking about. I think he's talking about something else, but it's one of those things that could be that. So, yeah, thanks for that question. Any others in person? Ben, were you scratching your ear? Okay, just very itchy. When I'm at auctions, I get itchy ears all the time. So, Okay, well, we'll leave it at that. Thanks, Jeff.